0: One of my favorite Far Side cartoons depicts a woman cleaning house. Uh, she has out her vacuum cleaner and wand with a furniture attachment on it, and she's working on a hide-a-bed. And she has the uh, pillows out on the floor, and you can see into the inside of the hide-a-bed, and you see this face turned on its side, jammed into the crease between the bottom of the of the hide to bed in the back, and that's Harry, her husband. And she says, uh, good grief, Harry, so that's where you've been. <clears throat> and uh, there's my hairbrush, too, she said. <laughs> uh, I hope Carolyn and I are not like Harry. Uh, out of sight and out of mind, we're still around. And uh, we do hope that you're continuing to pray for us. We have our prayer letter. In the, one of the slots in the back, and if you if you don't receive it, please pick one up. And if you'd like to be on the list to receive our prayer letter, please let us uh, let us know. Uh, I saw some figures the other day that indicate that only one out of ten pastors today who are involved in ministry will be in ministry at the time they retire. It's a 90 percent attrition rate. And uh, if we can do something to encourage these pastors, particularly couples that are in some of these lonely uh, places, uh, we can just uh, keep them faithful to the task. We we feel like we're doing what God has called us to do. This is the largest group that I've spoken to in some time. The last time I spoke in a church was in the little Salmon River Canyon. There were about 20 people there. So this uh, this is a little bit intimidating. It's good to see you. Would you turn with me to Luke 13, please, to the text that we have for us this morning. A man approached Jesus one day as he was teaching and said, Tell me, what do I have to do to be saved? And Jesus told him. And Mark tells us the man became very sad, and he turned on his heels and walked away. He got more than he bargained for. Jesus turned to the disciples and uh, he said to them, you know, it, it, it's very hard to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's impossible. It's like trying to stuff a camel through the eye of a needle. Now, that's not hard to do. I mean, that's impossible. That was Jesus' point. It's impossible to follow him in the path of, of obedience. It can't be done. The disciples asked the question that you and I would ask, well, who, who then can be saved? Now, he answered the question. He answered it well. But I'm going to hold the answer to that question until we look at the text uh, that's uh, before us. I want to start reading with verse 22. Luke 13:22. Jesus was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter by the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he'll answer and say to you, I, I don't know where you're from. Then you'll begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he'll say, I tell you I don't know where you're from. Depart from me, you evildoers. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth there when you, when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being cast out. And they'll come from the east and west and from the north and the south and will recline at table in the kingdom of God. Behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Our Lord was making his way through some of the small towns and villages of Israel, journeying toward Jerusalem, uh, where he would die. And as he journeyed, he redeemed the time. He was training his uh, disciples, and he was also teaching others about the kingdom of God and how to enter it. And on one of those occasions, a man came up to him and said, Tell me, Lord, are there few who will be saved? Now, I think that question was triggered by something that Jesus had said before. You, you looked at the passage, the, the immediately preceding passage last week. <clears throat> in that text, our Lord compared the kingdom of God to a mustard seed, which is a very small element, and leaven, which is, which is a very small ingredient. Kingdoms like mustard seed and like leaven. This man drew the conclusion that Jesus was saying that the kingdom, at least in its incipient stages, would be very, very small. He was right, of course. Uh, The the rabbis of that time carried on a running academic theological debate about how many would comprise the elect. And the conclusion was that when the kingdom came, everyone would be swept inexorably, well, all Israel, not everyone, but all Israel would be swept inexorably into the kingdom. But Jesus was saying that's not true. There'd be few, very few. I find that concept helpful, really, to some of the pastors that we're working with. They, they, I think, unconsciously, in seminary or Bible school, pick up the notion that when they get into ministry, there are going to be vast hordes of people that will take the Christian life seriously. And they're frustrated that people don't. I I tell them that all Scripture teaches that at any one time, in any given group, there's only a small believing remnant people who really mean business about their walk with Christ. I mean, that's reality. You have to accept that true in any church the rest of the people are just going along for the ride and and that's what jesus was teaching there are few who are coming into the kingdom and this man posed that question is it true that only a few are coming in now now notice how the lord answers he 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 bypasses the idea of how few or how many i just got cut off i think here we go i'm coming back he bypasses the question of how few or how many and he asks the question how about you the issue is not how few, but what about you? Our Lord was the master of the non sequitur—that is, the response that doesn't seem to follow. And he, he did that not because he was playing mind games or jerking people around. What he was trying to do is to get down under the motivation, under the under the question, to the motivations that triggered the question. Uh, when I was in seminary, one of my professors was Dr. Charles Ryrie, taught theology. And he told us one day in class, there are three, three reasons why people ask questions. One is to get answers. Two is to show how much they know. And three is to show how little the prof knows. Now, he may have had something there. Because most questions are, are not about what they're about, if you know what I mean. There's some other agenda see, that, that drives them. And our Lord knew that. And he, and, he, and he knew that underneath a lot of the questions that people ask, was another set of intentions and and, and motivations, and his responses were designed to dig down to that level. You have two wonderful uh, illustrations of that truth in in the immediately preceding chapters of the Gospel of Luke. In chapter 12, uh, our Lord was teaching on one occasion, and and someone shouted from the uh, congregation, Make my brother... Share the inheritance with me. You remember what Jesus said to him: "Beware of greed." Very terse answer, but see, he he was recognizing that most of our penchant for social justice is driven by greed and materialism and a desire to have certain possessions. So he said, "Beware of greed." He didn't answer the question, but he did answer the unspoken issue. And then I, I suppose last week you looked at the, uh, at the incident in chapter 13 where some people came to Jesus and said, uh, Have you heard about the uh, Galileans that Pilate slaughtered while they were offering sacrifices in the, in the temple? Now, we don't know much about that event. Uh, it's assumed that, there was, uh, that these were revolutionaries, they were renegades, and uh, they were sacrificing in the temple. And Pilate and his soldiers slaughtered him. We know enough about Pilate's character to know that he certainly was capable of that that sort of thing. There's some hints and clues about the history of that particular event. But it did take place, and they called Jesus' attention to it. Now, the unspoken issue was this. They must be terrible sinners. For God to have vented uh, his wrath on them in in that way, they used Pilate as his instrument of judgment. And remember what Jesus said? Unless you repent, you too will perish. I still remember a man sitting across from me with an angry tone of voice and kind of a laser-like look. And he said, AIDS is the judgment of God on gays. And I thought of this particular incident. I thought, well, maybe, but unless we repent, we too will perish. See, that's our Lord's way, is to is to get down under the questions, the the hypothetical, theological, theoretical questions and and probe some of the underlying issues that are at stake. I I think I've learned from our Lord's uh, method. I I hope I have that people's questions are not about what they're about. Uh, When I was working with university students, uh, I used to come across what I I referred to as the hot and tot question of non-Christians. Who we're trying to fend off God would be disconcerted, at least on the surface they would be, because how, how can God judge people who never heard the gospel? I heard that over and over and over again. And I used to debate that issue with them, and I finally gave it up because I realized that that wasn't really their question. They are trying to keep God at arm's length. You see. So my response would be something like this. Well, you know, I really don't know about what God is going to do about those that have never heard the gospel he's just we get our concept of justice from God and certainly he'll do what's right I don't know what God's going to do with those who have never heard the gospel but let me ask you a question you've heard the gospel what are you going to do and what does God think about you it's our Lord's way to get down to the motivations and the issues that drive us so he says to this man the question is not how few, but what about you? Now, this is a question for all of us. This text has to do with our eternal destiny. It's a very, very significant passage. I mean, all of Scripture is. But but this has to do with our salvation, how we get into the kingdom, and how we know we're in the kingdom. It not only has to do with, with entering in, but the assurance of of our own salvation now there are two things that Jesus says two issues that we need to look at first is this, Jesus said that the door is very very narrow and secondly he says in this text that the time is very very short the door is very narrow and the time is very short one of Shakespeare's characters says I'm for the for the house with the narrow door, which I take to be too little for pride to enter. Uh, that's Jesus' point. There are some things that you cannot bring into the kingdom with you, and and pride is, is one of them. You have to leave them behind when you come into his house. Uh, we have an old dog that used to want to drag her bones into the house. Um, We've learned better now that bones aren't good for dogs, but we used to throw them a bone every once in a while. If we had a steak or something, and she'd gnaw on that bone, she'd bury it, dig it up and gnaw on it. You know, and after a while, it was just the most awful looking thing you ever saw. And smelled a high heaven. And, and and she'd come to the back door, sliding patio door, and she'd have that bone in her mouth. And she'd scratch on the door and look at it, and she wanted to bring that bone in the house. And Carolyn would stand there at the door and say, Taffy, you can't bring the bone in the house. And make her leave it out. And Taffy never could understand why she had to stay out in the heat and the cold, you know, we had to live more comfortably, but she couldn't bring that smelly old bone in the house. See, that's what the Lord is saying. You can't bring your smelly old bones into the house. You can't bring all your baggage, your sins, your habits, your proclivities, your sexual preferences. The door is very narrow. Listen to Paul. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Those all have to do with our our sexual preferences and tendencies. Our sensuality. Idolatry and witchcraft. Those tampering with, with the spirit world, those sorts of things. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage. See, he moves. From what we would consider as physical, more gross sins into the sins of, of the heart, spirit, anger, and selfish ambition, and dissension, and factions, and envy, and drunkenness, and orgies, and the like. Listen to this. This is an inspired apostle speaking. I warn you, he says, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. I didn't say that. He did uh, He says almost the same thing to the church in Galatians. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. You can't fool God, can't thumb your nose at God. He knows. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers inherit the kingdom of God do you understand what Paul is saying he's saying that you can't bring your sexual immorality and impurity debauchery your idolatry and witchcraft your hatred, your discord your jealousy, your rage your selfish ambition your dissentious spirit your factious heart your unforgiving, bitter uh, uh, heart You, you, you can't bring those things into the kingdom let me put the cookies on the bottom shelf you can't bring your sexuality your own sexual preferences into the kingdom you cannot carry on an affair and call yourself a Christian you cannot carry on a gay lifestyle and call yourself a Christian you can't be an abuser or a molester and call yourself a Christian. You cannot bring your bitterness and your ugly, unforgiving spirit into the kingdom. You can't bring your greed and your personal ambition. You can't bring your non-Christian boyfriend or girlfriend into the kingdom. You can't bring your pride and your selfish ambition into the kingdom. Oh, all Christians at all times may fall into any of those sins, but what Paul, and our Lord is saying, is that you cannot justify or defend or protect or condone a lifestyle that is contrary to the will of God. If you're going to follow Christ, you have to follow him in the path of obedience. Carolyn and I, in one of our travels around the state, listened to a tape by Dee Breslin, who is the speaker for the Women's Conference here in 97. So, wonderful speaker. You're going to really enjoy her. She tells on the tape how she became a Christian. When she was in her, in her 20s, mid-20s, she decided that she, she had four goals in her life. One was to be slim and gorgeous, and the second is to find a handsome dude who had a lot of potential. And what she meant by potential was potential to make a lot of money. And, second, and third, she wanted to have two beautiful children, and fourth, she wanted a house that overlooked the Pacific. And if she had those things, her life would be fulfilled. So sure enough, she got to be slim and gorgeous, and she nailed this young uh, resident, uh, surgery resident, and uh, who had a lot of potential for making a lot of money, and they had two beautiful children. And yet she was miserable and unhappy and empty and and unsatisfied. And about that time, her sister came to know Christ through Campus Crusade for Christ and began to send her four law booklets and talk to her about her relationship to Christ. And, and she kept fending her off. She didn't want to hear it. One day she said to her sister, if I become a Christian, do I have to give up my dream of a house that overlooks the Pacific? And her sister, was a very wise young woman, said, let me pray about this for a day and I'll call you back. Called her back and she said, yes, you have to give up that dream. And she did. She let go of that dream. And she walked through that narrow door kind of interesting that God gave her that house over the Pacific at least for a very short time in a very interesting way it wasn't hers they were just permitted to live there for a while and now they live somewhere back in the Midwest where you can't even see the Pacific Ocean but, but God gave in other ways see that's what our Lord's saying you, you can't bring your old bones you can't bring your ambition your greed your personal desires your own motivations and intentions you have to leave them at the door. There's a book by uh, Thomas Costain called Three Edwards, the Three Edwards. It's uh, it's a kind of a painless way to learn English history if you're interested. It's a very good book. It was a New York Times bestseller. It's about the uh, three uh, kings of England, Edward I, II, III. If you saw Braveheart, you know about the first two Edwards, Edward the First and Edward the Second, Longshanks he was called. Edward II had uh, uh, had a daughter by the name of Eleanor. He married her off to a duke up in the Netherlands. His name was uh, Reynold the II. They had two children. One was named Edward and one was named the II. These two guys took sibling rivalry to the nth degree. I mean, they were engaged in full-time war by the time they were adults. The two dukedoms were, I'm tempted to say, duking it out. Uh, they, they, were, they were at war with one another. And at one point, uh, Edward uh, captured, actually captured Raynard, took him home with him to, to Newkirk and built a special cell for him up in the castle. It's interesting. This guy was ingenious in his cruelty. He built this cell that had no no uh, doors that open or windows. It just had slits, very narrow doors, very narrow windows. Now, the thing was, Raynard was, um, what shall we say, uh, he was uh, fluffy, he was round, he was uh, rotund. He was, in fact, his nickname was Crassus, which in Latin means fatso. <clears throat> uh, I told my, our, our granddaughters this story the other day, and right in the middle of it, Carolyn said, ooh, that's not nice. <laughs> She'd call people fatso. But that was his name. And uh, he was too wide to get the, out the door. And, and Ed, you know, when people would accuse Edward of being cruel to his brother, he'd say he'd leave him time he wants to. There no locks on the doors or windows, but he was too big. He couldn't get out. And, and to add insult to injury, Edward had a chef prepare gourmet meals every day and shove them through the slot. So the guy stayed there for 10 years. He did. I mean, this is true. This is history. He, he lived in, this, uh, in his cell for 10 years. And when his brother Edward died, they had to bring in a wrecking crew to tear the thing down to get him out. He was even bigger than he was when he went in. He never was able to walk out that door, okay? and about a year later he died. He'd, he'd wrecked his health while he was in there, in in that cell. Now the moral of that story is not lose weight. That's not the point. But it is to lay aside every weight that okay? would keep you from 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 walking through that that narrow door. Becoming a Christian, my friends, is an all or nothing proposition. Becoming a Christian means following Christ in the path of obedience. It involves making Christ Lord. Now, you may not understand the implications of that lordship. You have no idea what it will entail. I've often said it's like joining the Marine Corps. You know, you don't know that they're going to wake you up at 4 in the morning and make you walk 20 miles that day. But, but you sign on at the bottom and they, they fill in the contract. And to some extent, that's what it means to become a Christian. You hand, our Lord actually hands us a blank contract, which we sign at the bottom. He begins to fill it in, and we say, not my will, but yours be done. That's what it means to be a Christian. In the words I once saw on the side of a moving van, any load, any distance, any place, any time. Now, the the apostolic test of our salvation is obedience. Paul says, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourself. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. What's the test? Well, if you read through, that's 2 Corinthians 13. If you read through the context, the test is obedience to Paul's words. Paul is an inspired apostle. He had the same authority as our Lord Jesus. What he said is tantamount to what Jesus said. Paul says, if you want to know you're a Christian, this is the test you apply. Are you willing to obey what I'm saying? John issues the same same test. He says, we know that anyone born of God does not continue in sin. Oh, Christians sin. Uh, they're capable of any sin but the question is are you judging it are you are you dealing with it do you want to put it away are, are are you concerned about it do you feel guilt over it are you are you willing to ask Christ to begin to remove that predilection that tendency that habit that obsession that whatever it is that hereditary hell that you that you've inherited are you willing to put that at at his feet and ask him to deal with it so, See, that's why Jesus said it's impossible. It's impossible to be a Christian. The disciple said, who can can follow you in obedience? Jesus said, it's impossible. He's not trying to push a camel through the, the needle of an eye. It can't be done. And they say, well, who then can be saved? And you remember Jesus' answer? He said, with men, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. God has to do it. He has to deal with with the sin in our life. We cannot, by determined effort, give ourselves a new set of motives and morals. Everything that needs to be done can only be done by God. As the songwriter puts it, all the fitness he requires is to feel our need of Him. See, it's not a matter of cleaning up our act, uh, applying a little more spit and polish, Doing a better job at our performance as a Christian, that's not at all. It's simply acknowledging that following Christ means following Christ in obedience and asking Him to deal with those issues in our lives that are contrary to the will of God. I'm sure all of you have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis's uh, children's first of his children's uh, series. Remember Edmund? The mean-spirited little boy that turned the children in, you know, he developed this love for, for candy and that the witch was giving and uh, couldn't stay away from it. He finally betrayed the little children. And Susan said, what What shall be done? Says to Aslan, who is the symbol of Christ in those uh, in those stories in the Narnian tale, said, what shall be done for Edmund? And Aslan says, all shall be done. That's the secret to entering in. can't bring all those bones and ugly parts of your life. can't bring your own goals and ambitions, desires and hopes and dreams. You just have to leave those at the door. You say, I can't do it. It's impossible. I just cannot break free from these things. And it's right. It is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So you just take all of those issues and you lay them at Jesus' feet. And you say, save me. Save me. I need your love to set me free, and all shall be done. You know, for some people, that seems very restrictive. Ray Stubman used to use the illustration of a funnel. I've always loved this illustration. He says that uh, it, it, becoming a Christian is like entering the small end of a funnel. It seems very restrictive when you first step in, but it it becomes as broad as all out of doors after a while. So because you find that you're then able to become what you've always wanted to be. You're set free from all of the tendencies and habits and, and uh, compulsions and addictions and, and, and the grip that heredity has on you. You're set free. Just, and conversely, non-Christians who look at that, the small end of that funnel and feel like that's too restrictive, they come in the broad end of life and it becomes more and more restrictive. Which is the point that, Psalm, that the psalmist makes in Psalm 1. God knows the way of the, of, the, of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly will perish. The word he, he uses means it will pinch out. It becomes less and less fulfilling and satisfying, and they become more and more empty. So what looks like it's very restrictive in the end really is very freeing. It leads us into a, into a broad place. Now, that's the first thing I want you to know. The door is very, very narrow can't bring your bones in and number two the time is very very short jesus said strive to enter because there's going to be a time when the door is shut the word for strive is the word that's used for the agony of jesus in the garden as a matter of fact our english word is simply an english it's an anglicized form of that word agonizo very strong word uh, uh, it's a uh, it's, uh, word that Paul uses in Second Timothy, First Timothy when he says, fight the good fight is to fight, to be earnest to take this whole affair seriously you're not playing for nickels and dimes you're playing for your life, your eternal destiny so uh, he says, make every effort to enter in, William Law 18th century English devotional writer put it this way Many will be rejected at the last day, not because they have taken no time and pains about their salvation, but because they have not taken time and pains enough. You understand what he's saying? People are not there. They're not going to be in heaven, not because they didn't take time and pains about their salvation, but they they didn't take enough. eh? They didn't really think seriously about what it meant to follow Christ. They didn't count the cost. Um, the old Negro spiritual says, everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. And, and that's true. Uh, there are people that are, have been elders in churches, they've been teachers of the Bible, they've been counselors, they've been uh, heads of Sunday schools, they've been evangelists, they've been heavily involved in Christian activities who are simply not going to be there because, way down deep inside, There was an area of resistance, hard core resistance to the will of God, a dark and secret life that perhaps no one but God saw. And they're not going to be there. They're not going to be there. Someone has said that the two most asked questions in in heaven are, where's so-and-so and how'd you get here? I know a bunch of people are going to ask me that question. And I'm going to point to Jesus and say, I'm with him. Somebody, One of the congregation, I wish I knew who it was. Somebody slipped me this poem a couple of months ago, and I don't remember who it was. If it was one of you, please let me know, because I want to get a name on this. It goes like this, I dreamed death came the other night, and heaven's gate was opened wide. An angel with a halo bright invited me inside. And there, to my astonishment, stood folks I judged and labeled, quite unfit of little worth, and spiritually unable, uh, disabled. Indignant words rose to my lips, for every face showed stunned surprise. No one expected me. <coughs> See, that's what Jesus means when he says, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. There are going to be some huge surprises when we get there. People that are very prominent in the Christian world. Uh, the big uh, shakers and movers in Christendom are not going to be there because there's some dark area of their life that they've been unwilling to yield. And, there, and it'll be some of us who may not be there because we're unwilling to follow Christ in the path of obedience. Now, understand what I'm saying. You know, I haven't become a legalist in the year and a half that I've been gone. I'm not saying you have to you know, pull, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and try harder I'm just saying if you're going to be a Christian, it means you've got to follow Christ in the path of obedience. That means that you have to want it with all of your heart. Your performance may be somewhat lacking, but you've got to want God's will. Not my will, but His be done. You are not your own, Paul says. You were bought with a price. So the door is very narrow. Very, very narrow. Make every effort to enter in, lay aside every weight, put it at the feet of Jesus. Now the second thing, and our time's gone, I just want to briefly comment on one other thing that Jesus says. He says, the time's very, very short. Uh, he's not going to wait forever. Uh, he, he weeps. He waits. But you can't wait forever. This, this old world's getting weary and running down. And besides that, time's running out for us. Uh, coronary, cancer, some accident, takes us out. It's over. Door's shut. We don't, we don't have any more opportunities. That's what Jesus means. When One day the householder's going to get up, shut the door, and then the day of opportunity is over. That will either come when our Lord comes back or, or when we go. And we never know when that time will be. Monks during the medieval period used to keep skulls on their desk with a candle on top to remind them of their own mortality. We we don't have forever. Now, this is is the day. Uh, Brendan Manning, in his wonderful little book that he wrote about ten years ago, the Ragam- Ragamuffin Gospel, says, "Let me tell you a little story. When you're a rich fool, had a bonanza crop and made provisions for an even bigger one the following year." He said to himself, You're a good old boy. You've worked hard. You deserve everything that's coming to you. You have a nest egg for the future. Take it easy. Eat heartily. Drink up a storm. Have a good time. That night, my father shattered his security. Fool, this very night, the demand will be made for your soul. And this hoard of yours, who's going to enjoy it now? Man had a massive coronary keeled over. The door was shut. Manning goes on in so many words to say, Don't wait around. Jesus whispers, "Now's the time. The unreal world of glasnost and Gucci loafers, haagen ice cream, Calvin Klein jeans, beaver vest, Persian rug, silk underwear, and the Super Bowl is passing away. Now is the time. To remember that, now is the time. To remember the, that only one thing is necessary. Now is the time for personal decision and a creative response to Jesus' work. Okay? Now is the time. Because someday the door will be shut. So the question is not how, how few, but how about you? Not I wonder if so-and-so is a Christian, but I wonder if I am. And the test is are you willing to follow Christ in, in, in the path of obedience? doesn't mean that you always can do it. You may struggle at the end of your days with sin, but are you willing? Are you willing? Will you lay it at the feet of Jesus? Let him do what he pleases with it. And Jesus says to every one of us, enter in, enter in. Now we don't have time to look at the last section of this, of this text. Uh, some people came to Jesus. This is found in the verses 31 through 35, and they said, uh, Don't you know, Herod is going to kill you? He wants to kill you, put out a contract on his life. Jesus said, you you go back and tell that fox. This is Herodot Apostle, when he killed John the Baptist, who ultimately was at least in part responsible for Jesus' crucifixion. He says, you go tell that fox. Today and tomorrow and the next day I travel to Jerusalem. In other words, as Augustine said, we're immortal until until we die. No one can touch my life. No one can stop me from going to the cross. I'm immortal until that work is done. And then he broke down. He began to weep. And he wept over Jerusalem, I just could have gathered them in like a, like a mother hen under my wings. It's the depth of the love and devotion of our Lord and how it breaks his heart when we will not respond. So he says to us, you and me, not the person next door, not the person sitting next to you, he says to you, strive to enter in. Make every effort to enter in. Take the lead. See what God will do. Uh, in a story entitled The Old Man of the Earth, George MacDonald describes uh, the old man uh, in a cave with, with uh, another younger sort of protege of his. And, uh, he, he lifts this huge rock that's on the floor of the cave and props the lid of this uh, hole that he says goes plumb down up against the side of the cave. The, young man says, uh, the old man says, This is the way. The young man says, There are no stairs. The old man says, "You must throw yourself in. There's no other way. And that's what we missed. come to Jesus just as we are, without one plea. Here I am, take me as I am. all the sin, all the past, all the guilt, all the shame. I, I, I'm willing to leave it all behind. I want to follow you in the path of obedience. That's what it means to be a Christian. Let's pray. I want you to look down deep inside, probe the depths that God has already seen, those areas of your life where you 're holding out those secret parts of your life. perhaps it's a, it is a, a non Christian boyfriend or girlfriend that you 're clinging to and that you feel will bring you the satisfaction and the, the security that you need perhaps it's some uh, addictive substance that you're unwilling to give up, yield to his lordship because of the pain it will, it will cost it will cause could be your desire to be rich or famous or whatever it may be Lord, uh, Lord knows that in all of us there are those things that uh, we cling to tenaciously Will you take each one of those things and just uh, open up your heart to him and and tell him, it's impossible for me to deal with these. You must do it. And he says to you, all will be done. Will you do that? Lord, in this moment of, of, of quietness, will you probe our hearts? Show us what's there. And give us that yielding spirit with which you can work. We pray that we would take all of the issues in our life that we know are contrary to your will. And we will lay them one by one at your feet. Deal with them in your own time. And in your own way. We ask these things in Jesus' name.